Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. So glad you could be with us for this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. With me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue our look at a book titled The Infinite Atonement. It was written by Tad R. Callister, a very popular LDS author. We kind of gave you a little bit of an introduction as to what this book entails, but I want to read to you from the inside jacket of the hard copy edition where it says, With the infinite atonement, Brother Tad R. Callister offers us what may be the most comprehensive yet understandable treatment of the atonement in our day. Eric, what would you think about that description? Because certainly he's going to give a Mormon view of the atonement, but I don't think he gives a very accurate appraisal of what the Bible has to say regarding our understanding of the atonement. I think you're exactly right, because as we mentioned yesterday, the word atonement is the same word, but when you take a look at what Mormonism has traditionally taught, and what Callister is teaching as well, and you take a look at what the Bible has to say about atonement, you're going to get two different versions, and I think people are going to see that as we go through some of the writing of what Callister has given us. But we need to understand, as I mentioned yesterday, the way that the Christian views the atonement can, I think, be summarized in the book of Hebrews where Jesus is playing both the role of high priest and also playing the sacrifice himself. And uh, as far as going back to what took place in the Old Testament temple, it was all about sacrifice. Well, Jesus plays that role of the priest as well as the sacrifice. Just listen to some of the verses, and this is found on our website, mrm.org slash the infinite atonement with hyphens between those three words. And you can see that what I'm talking about in Hebrews 4, 14 through 15, Jesus is the great high priest. He was tempted, but was without sin. In chapter 5, verses 5 through 6, Jesus was appointed by the Father to be a high priest. That was a human in the Old Testament, and Jesus, as a human, also plays that role of the high priest. Chapter 7, 1 through 28, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and that is something very special that Jesus had only. And we should mention that just because it uses this a priest at the order of Melchizedek. It is not at all a comparison to what Mormons believe regarding their unique Melchizedek priesthood. Right. He was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't say he was a Melchizedek priest, and I think that's that needs to be brought out. Yes, I think you're right. Chapter 8, 1 through 7, Jesus is the priest of a better covenant, the new covenant. Chapter 8, verse 13, the old covenant was made obsolete. In chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus entered the holy place, not through the blood of animals, but by his own blood. Chapter 9, verse 14, the blood of Jesus is capable of purifying our conscience from dead works. That's an interesting phrase in chapter 9, verse 14 of Hebrews. And then in chapter 9, verses 25 through 28, Jesus offered once for all in the sacrifice to put away sin. Chapter 10, verse 12, Christ sits down at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 10, verse 14, his single offering has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified. And I think that's a verse that's often missed on many Latter-day Saints, and it's one that I like to inject into the conversation, because while a Mormon may think that his personal good works are what's necessary in order to be properly sanctified, we find from this verse that it was Jesus's offering, his offering perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Those that are being sanctified, of course, would be the believer in this particular case. Because it was a past tense, justified, and now he's in the process of being sanctified. And then finally, chapter 10, verse 17, for this list that I put together, our sins will be remembered no more. And that is the goal in Christianity, to receive Jesus and to have our sins forgiven. As you like to say, Bill, it's the main difference between us and all other religions. Well, in that verse, uh, seven, in verse 17 that you just cited, that sins will be remembered no more, do Mormons really believe that? Or do they believe, according to section 82 in the Doctrine and Covenants, that if they are to sin that particular sin again, their former sins return, saith the Lord? So I would think they would have a difficulty in embracing Hebrews 10.17. Bill, in this uh, book, he's going to show some of the differences between what we as evangelical Christians believe and what Mormonism teaches. And one point that he makes very clear in the early part of the book is that in Mormonism there is no such thing as original sin and that the fall was necessary if people were to become gods. He mentions on page 24 that the atonement was meant, quote, to provide the power necessary to exalt us to the status of a god. And then he cites Doctrine and Covenants 7669. How many evangelicals do you know, if you were to ask, what was the purpose of the atonement and what it does and, and what does it do for you? How many evangelicals would say, well, to provide the power necessary to be exalted and to be a God? Well, I'm hoping that the Christians who are listening to this broadcast right now will be bothered by that very citation. Because, as I just mentioned, the goal of the atonement for the Christian, what we receive out of that is the forgiveness of our sins, not to become a God. Certainly we will become glorified, but not in the same status that Mormonism hopes that someday they can become gods of their own right. In other words, we do not believe that we will be repeating a process that Mormonism teaches that has been, has been going on since eternity past, that mortal men are enabled to become a god, and then they are to procreate on their world offspring, who in turn, if they are good enough, will also become gods. There's no teaching like that in Christian history that is certainly unique to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. On page 36, Callister explains that Adam and Eve only disobeyed a warning and not a commandment. He says, some people feel that the command not to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was more a warning than a commandment. And thus, Adam and Eve purposely, quote-unquote, disobeyed a lower law in order to fulfill a higher one. I think this goes back to what Mormon theologians have tried to explain as far as, no, Adam and Eve didn't sin, they merely transgressed. And I've, I can never understand that kind of an explanation, especially in light of 1 John 3, 4, that makes it very clear that sin is a transgression of the law. They're synonymous. But for some reason, Mormon scholars and Mormon theologians 
don't like that comparison. And he seems to be doing it here when he says some people feel that the command, quote unquote, not to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge was more of a warning than a commandment. First of all, folks, ask yourself, who are these some people? That's not me, Eric. That's not you. I don't think any evangelical Christian would go so far as to say that it was not a command. Certainly the Bible tells this story as if it was in fact a command. Did not God tell them not to partake of the fruit? Not just merely a warning. Bill, what would you think would be a difference between a warning and a command as we're talking about right here? Well, you and I have discussed this, and I think one analogy that seems to explain it properly would be something like a parent telling their child, if you play in the street, you could be hit by a car. Now, that sounds like a warning, but if the parent was to say, don't play in the street because you might get hit by a car, now it becomes both a warning and a commandment. And this is where I think Callister misses it. Certainly the way it is worded in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were told definitely not to partake. Certainly there were going to be consequences as a result of partaking. That would be the warning portion of it. But when he says don't partake, that is a command. This is what it says in Genesis 3.3. Eve reports that God said, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. As you just gave the illustration, that's not a warning. That's a command. And what is the result of the sin? Well, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter five. He says that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. See, there was disobedience, and because they did what they were not supposed to, therefore it brought the consequence. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say transgression entered the world. He says sin entered the world. Callister does say in his book on page 41, the fall was not a tragic step backward. To the contrary, it was a painful but nonetheless giant step forward in our eternal journey. It was the springboard to our ascent. And that would go along with what it teaches in the Book of Mormon in 2 Nephi 2.25, where it speaks of Adam falling that men might be, and men are that they might have joy. So it was a necessary thing that had to happen. I don't even know if many Mormons would go so far as to say it was a necessary evil. I don't think a lot of Latter-day Saints look at it as being all that evil, quote-unquote. Listen to what he says on page 38, and he's referring to Adam and Eve. This is what he says. They are to be commended, not condemned. Someday we will know the full stature of their nobility. If they consciously partook of the fruit, sufficiently understanding the consequences, we honor them. If they partook in innocence or were partially deceived and thereafter learned the plan of salvation because of their obedience and faithfulness, which plan they thereafter taught with love and diligence to their prosperity, then again, we honor them. I don't know of too many Bible-believing Christians that would go along with that paragraph, that Adam and Eve are to be commended and not condemned. Now, when he says, if they consciously partook of the fruit, sufficiently understanding the consequences, we honor them. Do you think that they were consciously understanding all the effects that would happen from that one act? I don't get that impression. When they go running for fig leaves, you would think they would already have the fig leaves prepared if they knew what was going to happen. But yet they don't. It's kind of like 
now all of a sudden a drastic change has taken place. Their eyes are open and they're actually kind of shocked already at what has happened to them personally. What Callister does, he does this on page 46, is show the universalism of Mormonism's atonement, which is efficacious for everybody who's a human because they chose wisely in the preexistence. He cites fellow Mormon Robert J. Matthews, and this is what Robert J. Matthews said. There is a prevailing idea that although the resurrection is free, only those who repent and obey the gospel will never return to the presence of God. Those who adhere to this idea, however, seem to have missed a very essential point and fundamental concept of the atonement. And this is that Jesus Christ has redeemed all mankind from all the consequences of the fall of Adam. That statement's confusing to me because certainly Mormonism teaches that all are going to be resurrected, but he makes it sound like, wait a minute, to believe that only those who repent and obey the gospel will ever return to the presence of God? Numerous Mormon, uh, Mormon leaders have said just that. In fact, you can't even hope to be in the presence of God unless you keep celestial law because it's in the celestial that God dwells. If you are only good enough to get to the terrestrial kingdom, your hopes of ever being with the Father are lost. He wants nothing to do with you after the judgment takes place. So while Mormons may talk about this loving Heavenly Father, it seems like this loving Heavenly Father is not going to want anything to do with any of his children who did not meet his high standards during their mortality. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism.